0: You're all very, very welcome to this uh, TORCH book at lunchtime. Um, my, Kothrin, my colleague, Catherine Eccles, will, um, will introduce you in a moment. So this is just to welcome you here to this space on behalf of the TORCH team. My name is Elika, Elika Burma, and I'm director of TORCH, the Oxford Research Center in the Humanities acronym. Um, and what we do at TORCH is Host lots of fascinating uh, and stimulating events like this one. We're all about encouraging, supporting, and facilitating interdisciplinary research in the humanities. Um, and I would welcome you to pick up one of our attractive bookmarks as you go, but in particular, our What's On, which tells you about all the other great events that we have running this term. So you're all very welcome, and I'll hand over to Catherine. Thanks very much, Helica. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for coming to today's discussion, uh, which is part of Torch's Book at Lunchtime series, a fortnightly series of bite-sized book discussions exploring new books in the humanities and related areas. Um, This this series of books at lunchtime is part of our Humanities and the Digital Age headline series. um, And all our books this term will explore aspects um, of the digital. Uh, We have uh, some fantastic books and apps, in fact, lined up this term, but we're delighted today to be discussing Richard Susskind and Daniel Susskind's fantastic book, The Future of Professions. This book raises important practical and moral questions about the relevance of the professions in the 21st century. In an era when machines can outperform human beings at most tasks, what are the prospects for employment? Who should own and control online expertise? And what tasks should be reserved, especially exclusively for people? It's re- received great critical acclaim. It's been included in the Financial Times and New Scientist Books of the Year 2015. So I'll just tell you a little bit about the authors and our panel of um, commentators. Profes- Professor Richard Susskind um, is an author, OBE, is an author, speaker, and independent advisor to major pro- uh, professional firms and to national governments. His main area of expertise is the future of professional service, and in particular, the way in which IT and the internet are changing the work, uh, the work of lawyers. Um, and he has a long standing association with the Oxford Internet Institute, I'm very pleased to say. Daniel Susskind uh, is a lecturer in economics at Balliol College Oxford where he teaches and researches and from where he has two degrees in economics. Previously he worked for the British government in the Prime Minister's strategy unit and in the policy unit at 10 Downing Street and as a senior policy advisor at the Cabinet Office. Joining us to discuss the book are, uh, I always mangle poor Billy's name Uh (laughs) even though he's a close colleague. (laughs) <laughs> so here is Vili uh, ledon a default program director at the Oxford Internet Institute and a research fellow um, whose research deals with the design and socioeconomic implications of the digital marketplaces and platforms uh, whose, and his expertise is really around uh, virtual economies and online work. I'm going to ask Vili to speak first and then following Vili will be Joshua Horden. Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at the University of Oxford. Um, he leads the Healthcare Values Partnership, which develops relationships between patients, researchers, healthcare practitioners, managers and policymakers to explore questions of value in healthcare today, and which I believe grew out of the knowledge exchange work that started here at Torch. And finally, um, we're joined by uh, Professor Judy Wiseman, Anthony Giddens Professor of Sociology at the London School of Economics. Currently, I'm very uh, pleased to say a visiting professor at the Oxford Internet Institute. Uh, Her scholarly interests encompass the sociology of work and employment, science and technology studies, gender theory and organisational analysis. And she's just written this fantastic book, Press for Time, which I believe will form part of your... uh, response to um, the future of professions. So thank you all so much for joining us. I'm going to ask the speakers to speak from the table. So without further ado, let me hand over to Villy. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, Catherine. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss this tremendous book. I'm very happy to be here. So uh, <clears throat> when I first picked this book up and um, looked at the cover, leafed through it, uh, my first feeling was concern. A a book called The Future of Professions in the Table of Contents uh, promises to provide a 50-year overview. And as we know, uh, predicting the future is notoriously difficult. So I was worried how the authors are going to manage this. To my amazement, I found that they did a fantastic job um, thanks to um, a clever trick, uh, and that trick was the trick was that they started their fifty-year overview from the year nineteen seventy. <laughs> <laughs> I was, but <clears throat> on a on a more serious note, I was uh, I was quite impressed by how radical the book actually was because here are authors who are given all the detail on, prof- on professions and the current state of professions that is in this book. Given all of that, they're clearly very well connected with the world of the professions. Yet they did not pull any punches when it came to showing the um, the issues and the challenges that uh, face not just professions, but society that is relying on professions to provide services. So the high cost um, and frankly, sometimes the very low quality uh, that they provide. Having said that... Um, one one uh, thing that i was less impressed with uh, especially at the beginning of the book was if again if you pick up the cover and the book and read the cover it says how technology will transform the work of human experts so that suggests technology as an inexorable force that comes and changes things and indeed that's how the first couple of chapters um, tend to read but then i was very again very pleased to find as I read further into the book, that towards the end, the discussion shifts more to how technology opens up social options, um, new ways of, new potential ways of organizing work and knowledge in society, and then how it is up to social forces and social actors and market and various other things to make use of some of these or not. And it's not obvious at all, um, which options will be taken in the future. So I, I, the way I read the end, ending was that it almost finishes with a, with a pleat <laughs> to, um, to society, to bring about a certain future where professional knowledge is, at least parts of it are managed as a public good, as a commons. And there is perhaps not explicitly, but it's at least implicitly uh, a concern expressed there that instead it will end up being um, owned by a Silicon Valley tech giant, even though it's not said in these words, but that's what I've read in there. Perhaps that speaks more of me than of the book. I look forward to hearing how the authors felt that. So so in in summary, uh, it was a... It was an excellent read, lots of detail, um, and especially if you put in this kind of uh, social constructivist glasses and perhaps read some things in between lines, then I think a very um, uh, remarkable contribution. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: My thanks also to Torch um, for hosting and to, uh, to Catherine for, for chairing. Uh, technology, in Anthony Kenny's words, puts sins of omission as immediately and inevitably within our power as it puts sins of commission. Uh, for the Susskins, uh, quotes, the keys to the kingdom are changing, or if not changing, they're at least being shared with others. So the Suskin's attention to sin and allusion to Matthew's gospel naturally drew my interest as a moral theologian. (laughs) I've learned from the challenge which their analysis brings to ideas of moral obligation and professional authority. I affirm the importance of individuals being empowered technologically to bear responsibility for their education, health, well-being, tax affairs, legal affairs and, theologically speaking, the discipleship which incorporates all of these elements. And I accept that the goods with which professionals are concerned are not in the main affordable or accessible, especially globally. I'm sympathetic to regulated uh, markets and information sharing processes, providing cheaper or no cost access to important knowledge and services. And having read the book, I now expect professional life to look rather different (coughs) because of technology in a few decades. With that said, I've got four observations to make uh, about religious communities, trust, decomposition, and solidarity. So first the relative paucity and kind of impacts of technology on religious professionals specified in the book they talk about clergyless parishioners kosher apps uh, alerted me to an idiosyncrasy in their work that is the work of religious professionals which is not commented on in the book. Churches for example are by scriptural definition communities of fellowship in which some are equipped to be pastors and teachers. The interrelation of people and pastors involves a different kind of social phenomenon than the transmission of so-called practical expertise, i.e. information. Personal interaction in the church expresses a theologically underwritten unity of people in Christ, not reducible to sharing practical expertise in society, just because the church is theologically constituted as an alternative society, a Holy Communion. The author's reference to the laicisation of knowledge uh, via Balliol's John Wycliffe, the Reformation's morning star, is apposite in this respect, but needs some filling out. The eschatological expectation of the prophet Joel, cited by Peter at Pentecost, was that no longer would there be teachers telling telling each other to know the Lord, for they shall all know the Lord. However, the apocalypse is not now. Not yet. So ways for sharing vision, sharing wisdom, sharing the knowledge of the Lord are required. A core theme of the Reformation and post-Vatican II uh, Roman Catholicism is in fact enthusiasm for the empowerment of the laity. Uh, Many of the technological changes identified in chapter 2 are very much in tune with this pre-existing theological commitment. But not all. Most obviously for the Roman Catholic Church, Uh, Priests' practical expertise is, uh, to coin a phrase, sacramentally unbundleable, since only priests are authorised to perform certain practical functions. Uh, For the Suskins, it is uh, technology lag, which holds back apocalypse for the professions. (laughs) For the churches, the issue is going to be more complicated. The empirical data from the vanguard is important, uh, but does not indicate decisive shift in any one direction. Uh, online church participation through stream services does not necessarily undermine the role of the pastor-teacher, but instead may strengthen it. Uh, Beliefnet, cited often by the authors as the kind of online community you uh, uh, would envisage, actually terminated its community as a live, interactive entity on October 31st last year, in anticipation of a new, improved website at some point in the future. However, we have nothing yet. Second point: trust it gets a bit briefer. The logic of Pentecost is that professions and their current ways are not and must not be thought to be eternal. We should be realistic about the human proclivity to love self at the expense of neighbor. The Susskind suggests that their status, wealth and sense of life purpose make professionals poor judges of what will be in the interests of their neighbor amidst the technological revolution. Justice, health, learning, compliant tax affairs are vital goods, I'd agree. No vested interest or self-protective inertia should stop people from gaining access to these goods. Old Testament prophets and indeed Jesus of Nazareth had stern rebukes for a self-interested priestly class who bound up burdens on people's backs and did not lift a finger to help to relieve those burdens. On the other hand, no one is simply impartial, to to use the word which they come to at the end of their book, The reach for John Rawls, two pages from the end of the book, is not sufficiently theoretically developed to persuade those committed to communitarian, tradition-based modes of reasoning characteristic of the professions. This matters. Why? Precisely because the book seems to encourage popular distrust towards any professionals who are not persuaded and so resist change along the lines the Suskins recommend. Is that what they intended? Third, decomposition. Practical expertise for the Suskins is the problem-solution variety. Doctors are needed to sort out a health worry. Professionals are needed to, quote, make sure that our problems are resolved reliably, efficiently and effectively. So-called moral dimensions of professional relations, though valuable, are secondary. Quote, our primary need is only for a reliable outcome. Our primary concern need not be with altruism or the achievement of the highest ethical ideals. Moral dimensions are to be discarded if the choice is between them and access to the expertise itself. The separability of information from moral knowledge implies that certain kinds of professional work ought to decompose. For example, the repeated illustration is of surgeons in healthcare. The stereotype is that surgeons are bad at empathy but good at cutting. And so we have the production line approach to the clinical encounter. Quote, by decomposing the work that a surgeon does, we could introduce paraprofessionals who are experts in precisely the sort of comforting interaction that a surgeon might lack and critics worry we might lose. Now, their analysis may be unfair to surgeons, but can the same logic be applied to health professionals less concerned with incisions, whose work involves extended engagement with patients, geriatricians, palliative care doctors, for example, mental health doctors? To illustrate A key part of the physician's training uh, is an exam called PACES, which assesses uh, the quality of a doctor's combined technical knowledge and bedside manner. Science and compassion are simultaneous and united in a manner which inherently conflicts with decomposition. This is a civilizational achievement, admired globally and not to be decomposed lightly. It would be an odd thing to discourage morally excellent affections between doctors and patients. And it would require good empirical evidence that such decomposition in fact led to to affordable, accessible and effective healthcare. Existing evidence points towards the quality of a doctor patient interaction being significant for adherence to treatment. Decomposition needs to be worked out in some detail in these intuitively harder cases. That's not to say it can't be done, but it also raises a wider question about the kind of institutional future for healthcare which is envisaged. What will the future hospital look like across the range of medical specialties. For example, while the book has no bad word to say about the NHS, very positive about it, actually, the book is rather silent on the institutional form it ought to take. Uh, perhaps the Susskinds can enlighten us. Fourth, finally, decomposition bears on social solidarity. The hope for development is that machine empathy will largely replace expert empathizers, And we should not expect that machine empathy will be deep for, quote, Many human experts are lacking in empathy, and so we should not ask more of our systems than we get from our experts. Moreover, we should beware the AI fallacy, and so even expect a non-anthropocentric kind of machine empathy. What do we think of this? It is true that many lack empathy, or rather, good empathy. Empathy directed at the well-being of the other. However, it's not clear to me that a moral recommendation of having only very minimal societal expectations of good empathy, either from people or from machines, follows. There's an underlying question about social theory. Personal encounters in ill health potentially act as cement in our democratic community, strengthening solidarity in shared suffering. Such encounters may be mediated by people other than doctors, paraprofessionals, family, friends and so on. But I suspect democratic life would not be unaltered by the incremental diminution of the civic quality of these encounters through the use of empathy machines, through the decomposition of healthcare practice. Roddy Cowie asks in the Oxford Handbook of Effective Computing whether we should permit ourselves moral entry into a world in which so-called company is provided by these non-human artefacts, loosening our solidarity and suffering giving permission to friends and family to sidestep their responsibilities. The risk, Cowie says, that any reliance on effective computing must reckon with is that, quote, surrogate worlds may become so engaging that people lose the will and perhaps the ability to engage in the real one. Now, the Suskins seem to have a modest account of the moral philosophy machines will achieve and do not expect that machines will be able to participate in the human community of suffering, or in the subtler sense that our life is worthwhile. The successful operation of IBM's Watson surely can achieve significant good, opening up new possibilities for good work. But democratic solidarity requires certain kinds of civic quality, which affective computing ought not to be tasked with delivering. Increasingly capable machines cannot be our companions, sharing the bread of affliction and the wine which gladdens human hearts. Some may become satisfied with machine affection, as as the Suskins observe, but this will not be a good thing. In conclusion, however professions develop or become wholly replaced with new forms of working, a concern the Suskins and I clearly share is for the weak and vulnerable for whom professions, such as healthcare, at the moment and in the main, provide trust and solidarity amid suffering. Technological development is inevitable. Neglect of the most vulnerable is not. Thank you very
0: much for that expansive reading. Judy, can I ask you something? Yes,
3: well, it's um, it's very hard to follow, actually, <laughs> um, these figures, because um, a lot of the points have been made. I'm always last, because my name is Wiseman. This is just <laughs> one of those... Um, terrible things Um, and I'm afraid I I will be sort of repeating some of the points but perhaps from a slightly sort of different angle as I'm a sociologist. So I mean let me just begin by saying with everyone else that the book is a fantastic read and it's a great accomplishment and I congratulate the authors and it's very hard to disagree with a book um, whose laudable aim is democratising expertise and empowering people through the internet. I mean you know put in that way who can disagree with it. So in the spirit of trying to spark a conversation here, I am going to um, speak a little bit about where I um, part company with the book, which has been so eloquently um, put by the previous speaker. For me, as I read the book, um, although, um, I mean, Vili has made the point about technological determinism. I mean, I must say the authors themselves say that they're not hard technological uh, but. In my reading of it, I think that they still give far too much power to technology in driving uh, change in the future. And because of that, I'm rather sceptical about the future that they map for um, several reasons. I mean, the Suskins book is really excellent, but for me, it's part of a huge number of volumes um, that are coming out at the moment, all making claims about the accelerating pace of technological change and its impact on employment. And the stars in this narrative are always Moore's Law, artificial intelligence, robotics, um, effective software agents. There's a whole sort of um, cast that we get in these books. And what I've tried to do in my own book, Press the Time, is to step back a bit from this Silicon Valley hyperbole and actually think about how much these books are really... um, You know, they say they're about the future, but I think they're really about trying to define the present. And in my view, these books really feed the belief that somehow the future is a better guide to what we can do now than the past. These future orientations are everywhere, and they're really big business now. And I've been doing this work on technology and work for a very long time. I've lived through the death of paper. I've lived through the death of the office. Um, I literally was one of those people in the early 1980s um, who undertook a project on what was then known as telework, because we were going to live through the end of the office and it was going to be electronic cottage and um, all of that. And who would have then thought about the role of paper in high-tech offices, for example? And what about the death of the book? I couldn't help thinking, why write a book now? <laughs> why not just put it online, given um, what the book's saying? I think um, this genre of books claim to be predicting the future, but they're really trying to mould the present. And I think a problem with with them is that they actually can function to limit, to actually be conservative in terms of um, mapping out possible alternative futures that we might imagine. For example, instead of moving information online, as the democratic move, and that is the democratic move in the book, actually, that move, imagine the government investing far more in education so that there would no longer be a shortage of doctors, nurses, all of these professions. I mean, these shortages are actually artificially produced, and I think it's, it's these shortages, as much as the expertise, that gives these professionals so much power and high pay. I mean, many moons ago, I used to teach a course on trade unions. And the students would always say, trade unions have got too much power. And I would say, "Oh, do you mean the Australian Medical Association? Who do you have in mind about restrictive practices? Which is the, um, the line very much I know about British trade unions as well. So this brings me to my second point, And Richard won't be surprised by this because, of course, I can't help commenting on the glaring omission of women's historical exclusion from certain male domains of expertise, of skill, that if you look at the history of the professions, they've been defined by this exclusionary practice, by gender relations, that that in terms of what professional is, what expertise is, what knowledge is, what skill is, I think these are very gendered conceptions. Um, And this is an omission in the book, and I'm sure they'll have something to say about this. Um, It really struck me, and I'm going over ground, uh, you went over very well. It really struck me um, in the section of the book on empathy, where the authors write about, um, as you said, the need for paraprofessionals to take on emotional uh, work, emotional labour. But surely this is already happening. I mean, if you think about doctors and nurses, this division is already there. And the problem is really that empathy skills have been feminized and are very low paid. So I say, why not push for revaluing caring skills rather than looking to artificial intelligence and software agents to provide this emotional labor to to mimic empathy, which is what it will be. And finally, I'm going to be short, finally, I'm sceptical actually about the extent to which um, the practical expertise of professionals can really be made accessible um, and efficient via online intelligent systems. Um, I've got a new book coming out with Oxford University Press. I've been reading. They send me a million forms, and, you know, I was reading all these forms, and I had lunch with them last week. My editors, I mean, David uh, Muson, you know, had lunch with the editors, did the business in an hour, you know, got through it efficient, fantastic, no worries, trust, the whole thing. Um, And it makes me... um, If I can just conclude, very much in agreement with something that Louise Richardson actually said in her her inaugural speech. It's very short, if you'll just permit me to read it. She says, only a few years ago, universities were declared defunct, dead at the hands of MOOCs, you know, massive open online courses. The initial wave of euphoria that greeted the arrival of MOOCs, in which the world-famous teachers would teach for free and everywhere and online has been tempered by the reality that the completion rate for these courses rarely hits 5%, that those taking these courses tend to be well-educated males in the first world rather than impoverished women and men in the developing world and actually the successful business model hasn't yet been developed. She says the early experience of MOOCs has... Demonstrated what has long been known here that there is no substitute for, for the personal interaction between student and teacher. And so I am rather skeptical, even though the book is, is fabulously well argued, and I must say, you know, law and economics are wonderful disciplines in terms of countering um, logical arguments. But I am skeptical about the conclusion that we will neither need nor want. Doctors, teachers, lawyers, etc., to work as they did in the 20th century. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to all
0: of them. So many points. Can I invite? How do you, you want us to organise
4: ourselves? <laughs> uh,
0: in whichever way you choose. I'm sure you have
4: a dynamic you've established. Well, no, it varies enormously. But why don't I say a few words by introduction, uh, by way of introduction, and then. Uh, uh, respond to a couple of the points, and then maybe Daniel
5: can
4: can look after the remainder. It's always funny when you hear people talking about a book you've written. Um, And first of all, thank you for reading it, so at least three people have read it. (laughs) Which is more than most of the bloggers and tweeters have done. Um, But there's a sense in which, particularly from Joshua, that I barely recognize the book you were describing. So let me tell you what we're trying to achieve, and and maybe we didn't do a good job. Um, For us, what we're saying is, there's this institution, uh, set of individuals, a set of practices that we call the professions and we're interested in how technology, mainly information technology and particularly the internet and broadly speaking artificial intelligence might impact on these professions. And we say there's two futures that we've noted. So one chapter is devoted to mainly Daniel's work when he, we went out and looked uh, particularly in the United States and the UK, at the leading edge, leading thinkers, leading practitioners, of what was actually going on, um, what's actually happening in the huge tax firms, the major audit practices, the large law firms, the great hospitals, what's actually happening today at the leading edge. And we were amazed at, by some of the developments and we use the phrase that so many people use, the William Gibson phrase, the future has arrived, it's just not evenly distributed yet. A lot of the, the skepticism that's been expressed about the technology they're actually up and running and being used today already. So we've tried to make sense of all these advances we were noticing across the professions. And basically we said there's two futures for the professions in relation to technology. And the first, which we say is reassuringly familiar for for professionals, is that what technology does is it comes along and it streamlines and optimizes the way that professionals have worked for for the last couple of centuries. So it might be the doctor seeing a patient by Skype, it might be the architect using computer-assisted design, it might be the teacher using some kind of online resources. We're all familiar with these, they're up and running. They don't change the way the professionals work but they hopefully bring new efficiencies and we saw a lot of that Uh, and no doubt that's going to continue. Um, The second thing we saw was entirely different and that is that there are some technologies that are coming along that are actually transforming the very nature of the service and on many occasions calling into question whether or not we need human beings to be involved in the delivery of professional services. So let me give you an example on tax. And you'll all be comfortable with tax because we don't like paying tax and we certainly don't like someone having to pay someone to help us pay tax. So you've got these tax advisors. In the United States now, 48, uh, 48 48 48 million people last year filed their tax returns, doing the whole thing using some kind of online service, that might be something called TurboTax, it might be the, the government, um, the, the internal revenue service system. But the point is this, that whereas historically people used to need professional help, now they could do it online. Now the immediate response, and this is a generic response by the profession, well, you know, that's tax, it's not really, uh, it's not really being a doctor. So one thing you find, is every professional sees the scope for new technology in other professions other than their own. So this intuition you have that my work's very different from tax, uh, we might want to challenge. But uh, as my day job, I advise some of the world's largest law firms, some of the large accounting firms. It's not just happening in tax. It's happening in legal practice. The online services that Judy can't imagine them working. If you look at Allen & Overy, probably the best law firm in the world in my view. It has revenue of 12 million pounds a year from online legal services from 100 banks. These are demanding, insightful, knowledgeable users who find it more useful and more convenient to use an online legal service. We, look, we looked at and spoke to the world's leading audit firms and they were talking about the way in which audit will move from being a once a year uh, review to a real time automated ongoing process. This is not fiction, it's already happening. Um, so there's a whole bundle of claims um, We've heard some of them are empirical claims of a sort. Uh, You might say, I can't imagine that happening. And we can say, well, actually, it already is happening. Uh, Some of the claims are, this is threatening for the professions. It's not the way it's expressed. There's very much a lot of feedback we get. Whereas uh, I think think Daniel and I, our passion and our perspective is, uh, and our view, is that many of our professions are creaking can't really afford the health service we have just now. No one can afford to instruct lawyers. Small businesses can't afford to use consultants or business advisors. Our educational system we worry about deeply. So we're saying there might be another way. And I suppose one of the slightly frustrating things as an author, this is uh, me trying to tone it down, is when you do something like we say there's six alternative models for the delivery of uh, of practical expertise in the future, and people focus on one alone. So we're not. We. I mean, I can see the the, the deterministic point that we think, and uh, we can be. We believe that the technology is moving on, uh, and driving change. I can see we are we we edge towards the deterministic end of the spectrum. There, determinist. Um But nonetheless, as we often say, the least likely future, it seems to us, is that the technology is going to plateau and not continue evolving. Uh, And I want to put my my hand up just now and say that I wrote a book on 1996 called The Future of Law. So it's a 20-year prediction. Um, And let me say a couple of things like that. And it's just to put it in context in terms of mindset, Um, The Future of Law And at the time, I was talking a lot about email, and this sounds ridiculous and retrospect, but I was saying the dominant way that lawyers and clients would come to communicate in the future would be by email. Now, that sounds unexceptional, it sounds ridiculous even to mention it today. The Law Society in England, Wales, said I shouldn't be allowed to speak in public. They said I was bringing the profession into disrepute by saying that lawyers and clients would use email. That was 20 years ago. So my book was a 20-year prediction. Remember, that's a time when there were 36 million users of the Internet. There's now over 3 billion users of the Internet. When Nicholas Negroponte in the early 90s said there'd be a billion users of the Internet, most people thought he was certifiably insane. We have a a myopia that we point into the book. We cannot imagine the technologies continuing to progress, and yet they do. So if you're asking us whether or not we think it's more likely that technology will progress at a ferocious rate, we think that's way more likely than not at all. We are open to the charge, of course, of suggesting that valued people in society will no longer be needed. But that's not really our short or even our medium term prediction. Our focus just now in the whole debate about unemployment, as we say, is redeployment. What we need to do is encourage the professions to work in different ways. Um, and the empathy point's interesting because actually far from rejecting empathy, we explicitly say that one of the new roles we anticipate for the next, uh, through the 20s at least, are empathizers. We simply make the point that if there's terrible news to impart, perhaps uh, uh, news of a, a terrible illness or some <coughs> huge legal liability or a, a tax claim, it's not intuitively obvious to us that technical specialists are the next necessarily the best people to deliver the news and we're saying sometimes it might be better actually that uh, people who are who have stronger interpersonal skills deliver the bad news I don't think that's such a bizarre suggestion uh, we our discussion of uh, machine empathy we um, we were simply making we made a number of points one was the Joseph Weizenbaum point those of you all read his book 19, late 1970s uh, computer power and Human reason. He was making the point, uh, it starts off with he developed as a joke a system called ELISA that would mimic a a Rogerian psychotherapist. And he was shocked when his secretary, when he asked her to use the system, asked him to leave the room. This is why he wrote the book. He said, what's happening, that we might be developing systems that a, a human being would rather actually sit down with a machine than a human being. But actually, there's a literature emerging in the world of therapy now that does suggest, for good or for bad, that when people have got very embarrassing uh, um, issues to discuss, somehow dealing with a machine might, at least in the first instance, be a more comfortable way of interacting. We're just trying to open minds and say we shouldn't think that the only way of sorting out problems that in the past, the professions have solved, that the only way in the future is the current professions. So we suggest different ways, combinations sometimes of human beings, different human beings and machines, and sometimes machines in their own might be able to sort out some of the problems for which the professions have historically been the solution. And we'll say again, and you know, I'm very struck today before I hand over to Daniel, I was just reading a note from a chap in Uganda. And this has received all sorts of awards. It's his Barefoot Lawyer project. In Uganda, there's a terrible oppression of women, there's terrible uh, low understanding of technology and of good business practice, uh, Terribly, terrible lack of understanding of, of what law and regulation apply and what entitlements people have, and no decent way of promulgating the law. And this guy's developed uh, uh, through smartphones that are used by citizens themselves and by people out in the road, non-expert people. Uh, he's transforming people's understanding of what's available to them. And this, my final point, is an example we call the latent market. Because we're not, although we're concerned that people today who've got access to, who already use legal services could get a better deal, our bigger concern is the many billions of people out there who realistically have no access to decent medical service, no access to decent health service, uh, sorry, to legal service, no access to decent educational services. So we we're thinking, actually, there might be another way we can actually make some of the expertise available <coughs> and spread it. That's our premise. Okay. Uh, and we, we accept, because a whole bundle of Christians can be levelled, uh, but the, the motive, we think, is, uh, is, is a deeply moral one that practical expertise should not be locked in the heads of a few people and distributed minimally. It should surely be a resource that's shared by humanity. Dan.
5: Thank you you very much for uh, all your comments. Uh, A a few things to say. The first thing to say is just something about um, the future of work. One of the really unhelpful things that we do when we talk about the future of work or we talk about, in particular, the future of professional work is that we talk about the future in terms of the jobs that people do. So we talk about doctors, we talk about lawyers, we talk about accountants and so on. Uh, and we, and we, heard, we heard lots of that um, just there. The problem is that the, the job is, uh, it's a really misleading term to think about the future with. Because um, what it encourages us to do is to think that the work that people do is a kind of monolithic, indivisible lump of stuff. When actually, if you look at what doctors do, or you look at what lawyers do, or you look at what teachers do and so on, uh, they do lots and lots of different activities in their work. It it makes more sense not to think about jobs when you think about the future, but to think about the different types of tasks that people do. Um, Just to give you an example, uh, the sorts of things that a nurse does today are very, very different from the sorts of things that a nurse would have done 25 years ago. Whereas 25 years ago, being a nurse would have involved... You know, bedpans and bedside conversation. Today, being a nurse involves you know, the ability to prescribe certain types of medication and even perform minor surgery. So you know, same job title, but very, very different composite tasks. Now, why, why does that matter? Because there's a, there's a tendency in thinking about what, how technology will affect the labor market to pick the most difficult task that a professional currently does today... And say because that task requires empathy or judgment or creativity, then necessarily the entire job is in some sense um, is in some sense insulated from technological change. And so when we say the book in the book, we don't expect uh, traditional. Uh, we don't expect people to work as traditional professionals did in the 19th century. Uh, we, don't just mean, we don't mean that one day a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant is going to turn up at work and find a robot sitting in their chair, you know, that their entire job will have been displaced by technology. What we mean is that the tasks that they're doing are likely to change. Um, and so there's then a, a very interesting question about what, what, type of, uh, what type of tasks are there that machines uh, machines can't do? Um, now, the the second uh, that the, the these our, our term is increasingly capable systems and machines. Now, again, the temptation when reading the book is to tr- want to put it in a set of books thinking about the future of technology, thinking about how robots are going to take everyone's jobs. That vision of doctors turning up and finding uh, it was what the Economist called. The Economist reviewed our book after it came out, and there was a cartoon of Professor Dr. Robot QC, so a robot with a wig and a stethoscope carrying a big fat pile of ledgers. Uh, and there's there's a, there's a temptation to want to say, well, this is just another book saying that we're going to turn up at work and find Professor Dr. Robot QC giving us empathy. And that really isn't what the book is about. Um, you know, j- just... One of the models in the book, we set out six models. One of the models is a model where uh, machines do lots of the work. But there's another model called communities of experience. Uh, This is where a good example of this is in medicine. Uh, Patients like me, uh, 350,000 patients gather together online and share their experiences about the treatment that they've had, about the guidance that they've had, about the things that have worked for them. There's no traditional physicians or doctors involved. There's patients coming together. It's technology-enabled uh, and helping each other. Now, there's no empathy there from a traditional doctor, that's true, but there's empathy there certainly from other types of people. Um, and just the, cha- the challenge to, I think, uh, religious community is to try and explain why, for some, why it is that A religious community can only take place in a physical space but can't take place in a digital space. Now in in Second Life it's an online world where more than a million people control their own avatars, their own virtual representations of themselves. There's an island called Epiphany in this virtual world and there's an Anglican Cathedral where a a group of Christians run uh, weekly Bible study classes, daily uh, services and counselling and there's a counselling services as well. so again, it's, it's just the the idea that uh, you know IBM's Watson or a machine is going to be in in this future sort of doling out uh, empathy is is I, I think a mistake um, that technology is making making it possible to perform those tasks that require empathy from a human being either in different ways, like uh, my dad was describing with the Weizenbaum case, or with people, but just very different types of people. Um, I. I think, I think there's also a mistake that we make when thinking about the future is to to pick out a couple of failed cases and say, because these few cases have failed, then therefore necessarily um, things aren't going to... So while it may be true that Benef, be- Beliefnet, which has 5 million people folded last year, it's also the case that Pathios, which does a very similar thing to Beliefnet, and it has 1 million more unique users a month, 6 million, uh, is thriving and, and still going strong. Um, so it's, it's important... What we do is we set out hundreds and hundreds of case studies to try and set out a direction of travel, saying don't focus on particular cases, Uh, focus on um, (coughs) focus on these broad these broad trends. Um, There is, I mean, there's also just a more uh, a more fundamental point, which is, uh, I'll I'll take the example from the legal world. Uh, Last year on eBay, uh, sixty million disputes arose that were resolved online without traditional lawyers um, using what's called an e-mediation platform. Now, bear in mind that 60 million disputes, that's 40 times the number of civil claims that are filed in the entire English and Welsh justice system in one year on one website. It's just a huge number of claims. Now, I would find it very, very difficult to begrudge those 60 million people access to this service because, because there's no personal interaction with a traditional lawyer. Um, you know, I'd struggle to say to those 350,000 people who are using patients like me, sorry, the the empathy you're getting is from fellow patients, not from a doctor. I'm afraid we're going to have to close this site down. You know, there are very, very different ways of solving the sorts of problems that traditional professional profe- the traditional professions have solved, but look very, very different to the professions as they're currently constituted. And, and that's the argument of the book that we should be it's trying to... Um, Trying to uh, understand and nurture this new set of people and institutions, who are trying to do things in very different ways to traditional professions. Um, I, I, I just w- one, one, one final comment, which is that uh, just to pick up on the comment that government should government should invest more in education,
1: uh,
5: and I, you know, that was when I was in. When I was in Number Ten, it was very, very rare that there wasn't a policy which, a policy proposal which, uh, couldn't be solved by which, at first glance couldn't be solved by saying let's spend more on education. That that's the easy thing. The difficult thing is then to say what in what way should we spend on education? Now, how should we spend on education? Do we want to train? Again, let's move in the legal world. Do we want to train? Train? A generation of people to behave like 20th century lawyers, or do we want to train them to be 21st century lawyers? You know, take the 60 million cases that were resolved online on eBay. Um, it's certainly true that we could spend money training 2 million traditional lawyers to resolve those 60 million problems, They're giving each of them 30 cases to resolve during the year. Now, that's a possibility. Or alternatively, we could train and we look in the book at the twelve new roles that people might do in the future: data scientists, process analysts, knowledge engineers. We could probably train. I mean, I, I the don't know how big Modria is the organisation, but it was probably about fifty people rather than two million people uh, who set up this system. And we're able to help a vast, vastly larger number of people, but doing things in a very, very different way. So what's what's, what's, the, what's the point? The point is that uh, the bottleneck at the moment isn't that there is an expertise. It's not that we don't know how to solve lots of types of medical problems, or that we don't know how to solve legal problems, or that we don't know how to solve, how to educate people. The problem at the moment is, the bottleneck in the system, is that our method of delivering that expertise is... Is in face to face one to one personal interaction, which was the own, which was the right way to do it in the nineteenth century when that was the only technology available. But in the twenty first century, where there are ways to make this expertise available in a vastly more powerful and different way, it just seems, it seems, um, uh, it seems a mistake not to, not to want to embrace these, these new technologies. Um, I'll, I'll leave it there. Well, yeah.
0: I'm just conscious that there'll be lots of questions from the floor, um, so if, if anyone from the panel would like to pick up briefly on yeah. um So, Billy and then Joshua?
1: Okay. okay. Can I suggest that there, there are actually two books here. There's the How Technology Will Transform the Work of Human Experts, and then there's How Governments and VCs Could transform the work of human experts. And uh, I think Judy is correct in placing the first book in this emerging literature um, that that talks about exponential growth um, in technology and AI. And on that literature, I will only comment that uh, uh, there is no exponential growth in nature. Um, It always ends up being an S-curve, what appears to be an exponential curve when you're in the middle of it. It's myopia that prevents one from seeing that. Uh, You brought up Second Life. I was doing research on online games when Second Life was a big thing in 2006-2007. Gardner predicted that uh, 90% of internet users would have an avatar by 2015. Uh, and second life was in the cover of time and so on and that didn't pass uh, quite in in the way that people who were predicting Exponential growth mm-hmm. expected to pass but I want to set that book aside and discuss the book that I like uh, Much more which was the how VZs and governments could transform the professions using the new options provided by technology uh, that you also so eloquently spoke about. and um, uh, it's, it's, I think it's really about social organization of work and knowledge and you can read it as a descriptive account of uh, value chain restructuring of, of decomposition or what I might call disaggregation um, that is happening, taking place in the professions that is a very familiar story from other industries. So from software development that I have studied or from creative industries and so on. So it's not like these things haven't already happened to different extents elsewhere. And now there's a, here's a book that tells us how it is going on in professions that in some ways have resisted those changes longer than many other industries. You can also read it as a normative account on what ought that restructuring result in, what would be a good sort of uh, way of dividing this type of work and knowledge in society and I think here's where the, the opinions probably differ more. <clears throat> and I would just briefly say that I sort of agree with Louise Richardson's opinion that Judy brought up, but surely this face-to-face medium of education is the best possible, if we could afford it to everyone. But obviously, it's a very exclusive institution that we have here in Oxford. Finally, I think one further dimension that the book doesn't have, that but that, that it sort of invites us to consider is the way that not just solutions to problems are socially constructed, but also many of these problems, especially taxation and the complexities of taxation um, and law in general. I'm from Finland and I, from experience as a layman, I, I have experienced that property law in England is very difficult, It's uh, very complicated. Whereas in Finland, it seems to be very simple. Uh, it's the same physical matter. Uh, it's just that we've piled different types of institutions on top of that. So in one country, you may need lawyers in order to rent or buy property. And in another country, uh, you don't. And finally, let me finish with an anecdote, if I may. Um, in um, Since I'm talking about Finland, um, uh, one way in which law has legal processes have been automated in finland and i think in other countries as well is these uh, um, copyright infringement letters that are sent automatically uh, to people who have um, uh, infringed on copyright online and their ip addresses have been uh, obtained and and, and uh, their addresses and so on so that process is automated what uh, a friend of mine a lawyer has done is automate the other bit so with the other, the other side, because what these people who received the letter, what they do first is they go online, they go to Google and type, I got an infringement uh, like letter that demands damages, what should I do? And he's bought the, the first place on, on, on Google, and it presents a form. It just says, you know, in, input the, the name of the law firm that's demanding uh, uh, money from you, and what is the sum that they're demanding. And our service sends them an, an automatic uh, response that proposes... Uh, a slightly lower sum in damages and they have so many data points that they have been able to establish what is the limit at which um, the the firm will go to court, what is the kind of cheapest price you can get off with. So now it's completely computers playing with computers, Uh, no more humans involved. Thank you.
2: I'll keep my comment to sixty seconds. Okay. Just, I mean, there's clearly a lot of common ground here, which is to do with the making available practical expertise, especially yeah. globally, to those who, who need it um, at a low cost or no cost um, uh, on a low cost, no cost basis. So that's not, I don't think, quite the point in dispute. I mean, in terms of religious communities, um, uh, the lay of knowledge, which I emphasise, would surely fit well with second life. That's fine. That's yeah. not that's not problematic. The point about locality. And about uh, physical presence is, I mean, within the church, is, is, is naturally to do with the sacraments, to baptism and Holy Communion, which I suppose you could receive virtually in a way, but you can't actually receive. No. Um, so um, there's also the point about people actually being committed locally to an area where need is, where people are, and uh, therefore needing some sort of structure of leadership and organisation. But the laicisation of knowledge, Wycliffe, um, is, 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 is fine, absolutely fine. Um, of course, no one is saying that we should shut down patients like me. No one's suggesting that. That's that's not a problem at all. That's a very good form of empathy, which is a social civic empathy. That's not problematic. Uh, so
5: I wasn't saying anyone in this no, panel. Just no, some, some no. of the reactions sometimes sorry. are unless you have the traditional empathy of a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. We, all, yeah, we ought to abandon. Yeah, them. that's
2: that's unfortunate. But the I suppose what possibly Judy and I are agreeing on is that there is. Uh, I've If I'm catching it right, is that there is a kind of. Um, quality to um, Well, I call it a civilizational achievement that what you have in in, um, in, the, in the traditions of, of um, Royal College of Physicians and others is a unity of science with compassion, which is um, the de- decomposition of which is um, uh, Not to be entered into lightly. So I, I do think there's a there, There's a both and here which doesn't need to which and haven't got to exclude the former in favor of the latter. I don't think you're suggesting that and you're right, of course, to emphasise that there are different models uh, from which empathy can be communicated. Fully recognise that, um, but there is a, uh, I suppose, there is a significant civilizational loss which uh, which might come down the line with some of the things
4: being suggested. Can I can I just add just one
5: one observation, which is, uh, our, when we when we gave the book to our rabbi, uh, he said, ah, this is this is. Um, is very interesting and it It will apply to lots of religions but not
1: ours
5: (laughs) (laughs) because on a Saturday you're not allowed to use technology so you'll have to come to synagogue Um, and it's it's interesting, but I so I, I subsequently moved from an Orthodox synagogue to a Reform synagogue, and uh, not 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 because of that, uh, but it is interesting that now I can watch um, I can watch services from home rather than having to go to I just I, uh, which is I mean it's interesting and you see uh, and you do see in in other uh, you, I can um, if I was a Hindu and I wanted to do puja at one of the uh, temples in India. Uh, It will cost me a lot to go there, but instead I can just go online now and uh, and do a kind of small virtual puja at the site associated with the temple, where I want to put a note in the Western Wall. If I'm an observant Jew, I'm not, but if I wanted to, I could tweet uh, at Aish, I think, and they print one out and do it for you. Now, of course, these things are imperfect compared to to being there for real. but that imperfection might be a price worth paying in order to make this available to more people. That, that I think is one That's of the important arguments of the book. And you, across the professions, it may be imperfect relative to the best, but there are there are. Um, uh, but that might be a price worth paying. Perhaps the rabbi
3: was worried about how much pornography is on Second Life. You never know. That might yeah. have been his concern. Um, I just wanted to see seriously though that I know the book is is um, well intentioned and I'm totally sympathetic to the um, to the direction of the book. I guess I'm a bit worried about the political um, context in which um, such books can be read and I do worry that you know the push for a lot of online services which we're having at the moment um, can justify a lot of government cuts can justify a lot of um, political directions that, that I know the authors wouldn't be sympathetic to. And I say that because I think what we know from years of studying the internet is that online um, communication isn't a substitute for offline communication. That one of the things we've learned in the 30 years are that these things reinforce each other, that actually you have very good mediated communication if you have very good face-to-face communication. And I just worry that somehow the book can be read as a sort of substitute argument, rather than we need both and a working with argument. And, and you sort of imply that just at one moment with one quote, where you quote that second machine age book, where you say that they very much talk about working with machines, but you're a bit more on the substitute of machines for
4: people. So, yeah, we're making a different point at yeah. that point. We're, we're, I mean, it's the. It's like the public statements IBM make, uh, or certainly books published about IBM. This is not about replacement machines. It's about man and machine working in harmony, or, uh, as they put it. But um, we're simply saying that as more and more tasks can be taken on by human beings, it's less obvious that what role human beings will have in that partnership for many areas of life. There are many areas of life we anticipate human beings. Both will and ought to still be involved, uh, but uh, it, it seems to us a little pat. It's uh, it, it's uh, the the answer is, of course, that human beings and machines work together in harmony. And we think it's more complicated than that because uh, uh, because we're not absolutely sure in the long run what it is human beings will be bringing to many parties, not to all parties, to many parties. Do you want to make one observation? Which is, and I haven't read the speech by the um, by the vice chancellor, but interestingly, uh, one of the top educationalists in the country in in secondary school, made this observation to me uh, after I gave a talk. Uh, it was the MOOC one. Do you know only 5% of MOOCs are used? And there was a sense of satisfaction. And I think, first of all, the most amazing thing is, the thing the thing we cite in our, our book, is that more people signed on to, uh, to Harvard's online uh, uh, learning uh, offerings in one year that had attended the whole university in in its history for me the really interesting thing about that is there's so many people want to learn that's the first of all that's the most there is clearly a demand for learning that we're not satisfying through traditional institutions it seems second point is we're not satisfying it through our online institutions but i think to think, and this is what we call technological myopia. To think it'll just stop there seems to me improbable. Uh, that's the first generation, and I think it's just entirely likely that uh, those who are in- investing in both the-, the commercial community, for whom this means money, and the educational uh, uh, leading edge thinkers, for whom you know this is a huge challenge, I. It'll, it'll probably go up to 10% or 15%. It seems to me it's unlikely that we'll just say, okay, uh, let's settle at 5%. It's true of so many of these technologies. I often point to video conferencing, the Cisco's telepresence, when I'm giving a presentation. It's wonderful. People sitting in fours, time zones, talking with one another. And the phrase I use is, that is the worst <laughs> it's ever going to be from now on. Because that's the way it seems to us, and you can call us determinists, but it seems to me it's also true of MOOCs. They're probably the worst they're ever going to be from from now on. They'll just get better. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean they'll satisfy 100% of the community, but I think we shouldn't think that what we have today is somehow uh, the, 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 the end game. We're just warming up.